Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Two violent episodes in two different cities to update you on. A suspect is in custody in Atlanta tonight after a day-long manhunt. Police say he became enraged and opened fire in a medical facility earlier today. One person was killed, four others critically injured. And in New York City, a reportedly homeless man who was acting, quote, erratically on the subway was put into a chokehold by another rider. The homeless man lost consciousness and died. The passenger who restrained him was questioned, then released by police with no charges. Our panel has strong thoughts on what happened there. Plus, the culture wars collide with the high school musical. School districts are pulling the plug on some well-known plays. We'll tell you why the Adams family is getting canceled. And speaking of school, could you pass an eighth grade history test? It's harder than you'd think. I tried it earlier. Tonight, we'll see how much you and I and our panelists know. Okay, but let's begin with updates on two violent crime stories. The man who opened fire in an Atlanta medical facility today, killing one person and wounding four others, is under arrest tonight. He was captured after many hours of a manhunt. And then there's what happened on a New York City subway on Monday. We warn you, this video is disturbing to watch. A 30-year-old man named Jordan Neely, who a witness say was acting, quote, erratic and hostile, was put into a chokehold by a 24-year-old passenger, and he later died. CNN has not independently confirmed what happened leading up to that incident. We do not know how long Jordan Neely was restrained or whether or not he was armed. But the medical examiner now rules his death a homicide. A source tells CNN that Neely was homeless. Protesters took to the subway tonight chanting Black Lives Matter and the Homeless Matter. Okay, here to talk about all of this, we have Van Lathan, host of the Higher Learning Podcast on The Ringer, Mike Duhame, former political director of the RNC, Franklin Leonard, founder and CEO of The Blacklist, and Alyssa Farrah Griffin, former Trump White House communications director. Great to have all of you here tonight. Um, so, Franklin, how do you see what happened on the subway? Um, well, I, I think I only have what's, what's been reported thus far. Um, and I think uh, we have to be brutally honest about what that seems to be. Uh, a man on the subway was yelling about not having any food, not having any water, uh, that he would prefer to be in jail and was ready to die. Um, another passenger snuck up behind him and put him in a chokehold and held him down and choked the life out of him, um, while other passengers appeared to have done nothing, although one did hold his hands down so that he couldn't resist. Um, there was no attempt ostensibly to talk to the man, to offer him assistance, 
people didn't escape the subway train to avoid what you know, danger they thought might exist. They did say they were moving. I mean, one witness said that they were moving to the other end of the subway car because people were rattled by the fact that he was saying, I don't care if I go to jail for the rest of my life. I'm ready to die. I mean, you can imagine that's unsettling when somebody is um, ranting. They did say he was aggressive. I mean, again, there's been no indication that he was physically menacing anyone. He definitely did not commit any acts of violence. And I don't think the the crime, the, the, the sensible crime of yelling about your miserable state in life is punishable by death, and certainly it shouldn't be in America. I mean, there, there wasn't an attempt. The 24-year-old who restrained him from behind, snuck up behind him and choked the life out of him, did not attempt to put himself in between this person who was supposedly a threat and the other passengers in the car. He snuck up behind him, choked him out, and the man died. These are sort of incontrovertible facts at this point. So, and, and there's no evidence that's been presented that he had a weapon. So we don't have any evidence that he did, but we, don't have any, we certainly don't have any evidence that he didn't. So um, it's been weighing on my soul, and I, I think it's deeply, deeply troubling. How do you say it, Alyssa? We spoke recently about Ralph Yarls uh, being shot, shot by a man who immediately, when he knocked on the door, didn't take a number of steps that he could have before opening fire. This is similar to me. I don't fault anyone for feeling threatened or endangered as he was acting the way that he was. But why hold him for nearly four minutes? Why not restrain him? You had two men at this point who could have kept him but made sure that he was breathing. And the fact that people around him, nobody stood up and said, hey, is he okay? He, at that point, he, wasn't, he was contained. He was not posing a risk. And the bigger picture here is I think that there is a fear amongst us as Americans, a fear of the person next to us, a fear of our neighbor, the person next to us on the subway that is stoked by so many things. I think the media environment, I think that there's a role that foreign adversaries have played in pitting Americans against each other. I think that the way that we perceive crime with the 24-hour news cycle, people fear like, feel like they're constantly at risk. And then rather than dealing with the rising mental health crisis and actually addressing that, we tend to just run from these people and not giving them the, the assistance they need. I think it is horrible. Anyone who watches that, there are 20 steps that could have been taken other than this that could have restrained him and kept everyone safe. Um, Mike, one of the witnesses on the subway car who, and who took that video said that it wasn't apparent to them that he was dying. It was apparent, obviously, that he was in a chokehold, but they couldn't tell that he was dying. In fact, when police later talked to him, he was shocked that, that the man had died. Well, if you're choking someone, you know that's a possibility. And by the way, if you if you spend time in New York, uh, you deal with people who are mentally unstable. You deal with people who may have addiction issues. Last week, I was confronted in a park in New York uh, by somebody asking uh, for, for money. I gave him a few bucks, a little bit of help. He came back five or ten minutes later, uh, very threateningly, asking for more, saying I looked rich and he was going to take more. And what did you do? I basically, you know, you get a little adrenaline rush, but you basically tell the person to leave you alone. Now, I was at a park. I could have run if I wanted to. Uh, It went on for a few minutes. Nothing ultimately happened. But point being, like, it's not okay. You can't avoid these situations. You have to avoid these situations. If you live in a major city, you're going to be confronted with homelessness and confronted with people with issues. And it's not justifiable. It's not okay. Um, And I do think the culture of this, you know, whether it's stand your ground or whatever it might be, that makes people feel like they can have license to do this is wrong. And we have to stand up and say it's wrong when it is. We don't know all the facts, but from what we see, there's probably a way to avoid that situation without the person dying. Man, are you surprised that police questioned him and that there were no charges? I mean... No, uh, not at all. Uh, I'm not surprised at all because I think in that situation, the police are reinforcing the societal edict that people feel like they have and like the police have, if I'm being honest with you. In that particular situation, what you see is somebody who represents the complete 
the whole kid and caboodle of the forgotten of America. You're talking about someone who doesn't have a home, someone who is going through a mental health crisis, and just be real, someone who is black. So when you look at all of those three things, if that person is perceived as a threat, there seems to be, at this particular time in our history, uh, this knee-jerk to kill or to dominate or to eliminate. And as we're talking sort of in this grand amorphous uh, scheme of where that's coming from, at some point, there's going to have to be somebody with the courage to name that. There is a specific side of the American political discussion that's telling you uh, the criminals are coming to kill you, that's telling you the undocumented people are coming to kill you, that's telling you that the, the image of a black man, the image of somebody unwell, is what you need to fear when you walk out into society at large. So, I mean, I saw another video of a white man choking out a black shoplifter at TJ Maxx. Like, when did all of these people become Batman? Like, the reality of the situation is there's something inside of them that makes them think they have to take their country back. And they didn't conjure that information by themselves. They're being told it's us or them. And if somebody doesn't come to stem the tide of some of the political animus and some of the cultural animus that we're seeing, this will get worse. Here's how uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams talked about it tonight on CNN moments ago. One of the reasons that this uh, story is really hitting a nerve is because this man uh, appeared to be having mental health issues. This is something that you've talked a lot about. But I want to read to you. This is a response from the comptroller, Brad Lander. He tweeted this. New York City is not Gotham. We must not become a city where mentally ill human can be choked to death by a vigilante without consequence. There's also this from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic congresswoman. She said, Jordan Neely was murdered. What is your response to what they're saying here? Well, uh, both the Congress, congr- Congresswoman and uh, the controller, uh, the controller is a citywide leader. And I don't think that's very responsible at the time where we're still investigating the situation. Let's let the DA uh, conduct his investigation with the law enforcement officials uh, to really interfere with that is not the right thing to do. And I'm going to be responsible and allow them to do their job and allow them to determine exactly what happened here. So now the now the DA is investigating this um, because it did come as a big surprise, not to them, but to a lot of people <laughs> that he was questioned by police. And then, I mean, never mind homicide, no manslaughter, no anything, any other charge, even a minor one. I don't think it comes as a surprise to anybody who's paying attention, right? Like, we are talking about a black victim victim killed by a white man. Um, There are many, many cases of that happening and no immediate prosecution until there's an outcry from the public. Um, I also think we just we have to be realistic about the fact that I, I actually agree with Van. Someone needs to name who is responsible for whipping up this fear. But I actually would argue that it's not just the, the political right in this country, though they have certainly been engaged in a long political project to do just that. But, you know, if you look at sort of the way in which Hollywood and the way in which the media generally has characterized black people in America, going back to the birth of the film industry with Birth of a Nation... This has been a common theme. Um, And the consequence of that is the perception of black men as violent, the perception of black men as dangerous. And that's how you end up with Trayvon and a kid getting shot for going to the wrong door and a young man who's saying, I don't have food and water. I'd rather die. I'd rather be in prison. And someone choking him to death over multiple minutes. Yeah. 
Um, people are nervous about riding the subway. They have been since the pandemic, though crime is now, in terms of the subway, um, it is down. Crime is down a year to date by 8.1% New York City transit crime, which is obviously good news. More people are going back on the subway. But this isn't, um, I mean, obviously the death and the chokehold is highly unusual, but the being on a subway car, feeling trapped and somebody coming in and being aggressive and maybe asking for money or shouting or seeming um, mentally unwell is not. And I don't know what the right answer is, actually, for what you do in, with that situation. Well, and it's it's difficult because um, homicides, for example, are down citywide over the past several years. More minor crimes, muggings, um, stalking, et cetera, have been on the rise, but not something that's disproportionate from prior years. But perception becomes reality from people. If your local news is showing something that this happened, you're going to think that there is a threat. Um, I'm so, I, I've only lived in New York, and, you know, not very long, but I've seen muggings. I've had similar encounters. So you have that sense of, am I at risk? But again, there is there is a responsibility that comes with the individual of if you face something, what is your duty to do? What is taking it too far? How can you de-escalate something? And time over time again, you see that it, go, it goes to the furthest extreme. And I just want to note this, mark my words, unfortunately, I hope I'm wrong, this is going to become a split-screen America moment where people on one side are going to see this blatant, what I see as a killing of a man on a subway one way, and half of the country is going to see it as something totally justified and different. And it, it reminds me of something like Kyle Rittenhouse, for example, where the you know the country basically divided into one side or the other. I hope that we can come to a place where we could see perhaps his behavior was wrong or it was threatening or it was scary to people, but that is so disproportionate to what he was doing, and it is so wrong. Is there an answer? I mean, we only have 30 seconds left. Is there an answer for when you, you feel threatened? I mean, as you were saying, you could have run away in a park, but what is the this, answer? This, different, this, this city is very different than it was 30 years ago. I mean, you did feel unsafe 30 years ago. Over, the, over many years, the city has changed. People much feel much safer now, feel much safer on the subway now. And it's, and it's inexcusable. And the more we talk about how uh, maybe somebody feels this way or that way, you know, having come into this city for, you know, a good portion of my life, it is it is much, much safer. Most people know it. Is crime a little bit up? Did it did it go up a tick in the last five, six years? Absolutely. But it is very different. Compared to the 80s, you're so right. I mean, that is for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, Brands, thank you very much. Okay, next. The strange text message that Tucker Carlson sent that reportedly led to his firing. We'll talk about that. Well, we now have a better understanding of why Tucker Carlson was fired. The day after the January 6th insurrection, Carlson wrote a text to his producer describing a video of a mob of Trump supporters beating up someone he called, quote, an Antifa kid. Carlson says he found himself rooting for the mob to kill the kid. The New York Times reports that the text alarmed Fox's board of directors and played a role in his abrupt firing last week. I'm back with our panel. Guys, I feel I should read the whole thing just in case somebody hasn't heard it because it really is a journey. Um, so here goes. Um, Tucker Carlson sent this on January 7th, 2021 to his producer. And this came out in the Dominion lawsuit. It says a couple weeks ago, I was watching video of people fighting on the street in Washington. A group of Trump guys surrounded an Antifa kid and started pounding the living shit out of him. It was three against one, at least jumping a guy like that is dishonorable. Obviously, it's not how white men fight. Yet suddenly I found myself rooting for the mob against the man, hoping they'd hit him harder, kill him. I really wanted them to hurt the kid. I could taste it. Then somewhere deep in my brain, an alarm went off. This isn't good for me. I'm becoming something I don't want to be. The Antifa creep is a human being. Much as I despise what he says and does, much as I'm sure I'd hate him personally if I knew him, I shouldn't gloat over his suffering. I should be bothered by it. 
I should remember that somewhere somebody probably loves this kid and would be crushed if he was killed. I don't care. If I don't care about those things, if I reduce people to their politics, how am I better than he is? Alyssa? It's just stunning. Um, I just want to note one thing my friend Whoopi Goldberg said, but um, white men don't fight like that. I would remind them of Emmett Till's murder. Um, white men are just as capable as anyone of brutally um, harming people. But it's it's a window into the soul of Tucker Carlson. I've wondered for years, having kind of known him, is it an act? Is it a character he plays on TV? And this shows us it's not. This um, He espoused things similarly on air, but this is so stark. It starts with blatant racism. Then it descends into wishing harm to somebody purely because you disagree with their politics, and then sort of having this, like, soul-searching moment. It's similar to the video he released, too, after he left, where he basically said, I'm shocked that people are actually kind of kind and nice. Most people are. It is Tucker Carlson who spews division, hatred, bigotry, racism on the airwaves. This is a cry for help as far as I'm concerned. I couldn't tell if it was the racism in it or the homicidal tendencies in it that got the Fox, the Fox board so upset? I mean, I can't speak to the Fox board, but I don't think anybody should be surprised that this is who Tucker is. Uh, I mean, yes, this is something that he communicated in private via text message, but it is very much in keeping with all the things that he says publicly. And I think, you know, when somebody tells you who they are over and over again for decades, uh, maybe believe them. I mean, this is someone who described Iraqis as semi-literate primitives. Um, You know, and there are countless other things that he said that are sort of analogous that you can Google and find out yourself. Um, This is who he is. And I think going back to our conversation in the previous segment, that's not how white men fight. Well, the guy who just killed Jordan Neely snuck up behind him and choked him out. Worse than a sucker punch. Um, I, I don't think that, you know, when we're talking about how white men fight and how other groups of people fight, we're already, we already know who you are. Um, this is just confirmation, and I, I think, you know, Tucker's going to be who he's going to be. Mm. I just hope that we don't have to listen to him anymore. I thought well, another thing that was interesting, Mike, and maybe I don't know if you hear it that way, but as Melissa said, people wondered what was real. And I... Th- do you think that the, the cancer that he was spewing did end up being a poison? Did, at this moment in here, is this sort of insightful and uh, reflective where he realizes it's also poisoning him? Well, I'm, I'm not going to say he's very insightful in that. He meanders down the way, but that's, that's far from an insightful uh, text. Um, but I do think that he was probably in an echo chamber that he was contributing to in Fox. And I teach a class at Rutgers, and I challenge the students to listen to people who don't think like you. Watch cable TV that you don't agree with. Listen to talk radio that you don't agree with. Read websites you don't agree with. Because you'll find we have much more in common uh, than you think. And I think when you get into this echo chamber, if you only watch one side or the other, not, you, you, you stop thinking the other side is wrong and you start thinking the other side is evil. And we've gone from policy disagreements to thinking the other side is evil and they deserve to be punished and in some cases killed. That's absolutely, it's crazy, but I think it's part of the echo chamber that but perhaps he was the he was ringleader in. of that yes. echo chamber, man. Yeah. yeah, this is a top 10 text message ever released. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I like to, I formulated a whole scene around this. Tucker shirtless somewhere, <laughs> high on dust, just giving like a stream of consciousness look into his mind. It's all right there. It's Tucker tries to be decent. He just can't. He's just incapable of it, right? He wants to, I wanted them to kill this kid, but then I didn't. And I feel bad that I didn't want them to kill the kid. And also, this is not how white men act. And like, when I think about the, this is not how white men act line, that is a fear realized. Like, you, you look at people on television, right, and they're talking and they're, they're doing their whole thing, 
And as a black guy, I see it. I go, there it is. Right there, I see him. He's doing it, and they all get it. And everybody goes, no, it's not. He's just, you know, he's fair and balanced. He's representing the other side. Meaning you can spot the racism. I can smell it through the TV. It comes off like it's brute, like his cologne (laughs) is wafting through the airwaves. I, I smell it. And... And, and everybody tells you it's not there. No, it's not. You're, you're being hyper-emotional and all of that. And then he says, this is not white, how white men fight. He has a different standard. He's teaching that standard to a very significant portion of the American populace. And he's doing it through this weird racist ESP that we all see. But we keep getting gaslight into see, to people telling us that it's not there. So when I read that, I actually cracked a cold one. <laughs> I was like, yo, man, bring out the Abita beer. Like, Tucker just, like, he let it go. I like it. Give it to me, Tucker. But do you think that it would have helped if he had ever said that on the air? Like, I don't like that I feel this way. Here's how I'm feeling. I don't like the, how I feel this way, but they're making me feel that way. Do you think that that could, could he ever have given, opened this window into his soul? And would it have helped if he said something like that on the air? Yeah, if he would have said something like that, besides the white man part, there might have been a part of it that could have actually been perceived as something incredibly powerful um, and just transparent, right? It's like, hey, I am all whipped up just like you were whipped up. I don't want to be that way. The thing is, I don't think he believes it. And I think he talked himself into it while he was sending the text message. And he misses his own lesson, which you can separate someone's politics that you disagree with from their humanity. Like, he kind of roundabout gets there, but he doesn't seem like he fully understands that. Oh, right right after this, he went back on the air and went back to all of his usual Exactly. I mean, look, there's there's this uh, British television show called Peep Show, and there was a sketch, and it's been deployed a lot on Twitter as a gif. And ironically enough, it features two Nazis, and one of them turns to the other and says, wait, are we the baddies? (laughs) And in, in, in reading that text message, I couldn't help but think that maybe this is Tucker's, like, Nazi, are we the baddies moment. And it really couldn't be more on the nose. Friends, thank you very much for that insightful conversation. <laughs> really appreciate that. Everyone stay with me. First it was Whole Foods, now it's Nordstrom. Why major retailers say they are leaving San Francisco. That's right after this. Another store closing in San Francisco, this time it's retail giant Nordstrom. In a statement today, the company said, quote, decisions like this are never easy, and this one has been especially difficult. But as many of you know, the dynamics of the downtown San Francisco market have changed dramatically over the past several years, impacting customer foot traffic to our stores and our ability to operate successfully. Nordstrom is just the latest store to leave the area. Last month, Whole Foods announced it was closing its flagship store, citing concerns about worker safety. My panel is back. Um, Franklin, you are not buying Nordstrom's explanation here that the uh, community around them has changed too much. Well, I think it has changed in the sense that the, the sort of the office workers who would have made up most of their uh, customers are no longer there. They're working from home. They're buying things uh, online. But the implication, obviously, is when you say the dynamics of the neighborhood is that it's somehow crime related. And the numbers just don't back that up. Um, you know, I believe that Nordstrom store opened in 1988. Uh, the Nordstrom Rack store that's closing opened in 2013. Crime was definitely worse when both of those stores opened. So if the concern is worker safety or the dynamics of the neighborhood... Why did you open the store in the first place? I think more realistically, there are financial realities to running a 350,000-square-foot store in downtown San Francisco right now, um, and they're making a financial decision for the best of the company. They're also closing 13 stores in Canada. I don't think that has anything to do with the changing dynamics in that neighborhood, in those neighborhoods. So I think, you know, look, 
they're not making as much money as they used to in this store, so they're closing it. Uh, I think that it's a lot easier to communicate to Wall Street that it has something to do with the possibility of the specter of crime, when, again, the numbers in San Francisco actually don't back that up, despite the narrative that's coalesced around the city. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little skeptical. Mike, I'm coming to you next because I read that it's your favorite city or one of your top two favorite cities. I love, I love, as you heard before, I love New York. I love San Francisco, too. It's a great city. But it is jarring walking around San Francisco and seeing whether it's open-air uh, drug market, whether you see, you know, some of the, again, videos that people have seen about looting, the pandemic. I, so I agree. You, it was probably the, the pandemic put incredible pressure on all retail stores, and that has to be part of it. But do um, you disagree with Franklin? I mean, in other words, do you think that crime is the worst and that the dynamics of the neighborhood mean crime and homelessness and it has gotten much worse or that's just the perception whether that's the only reason i believe it is probably a reason and and yes workers are leaving but if workers don't feel safe and people don't feel safe um then obviously retail is going to be down i don't believe it's the only reason but it's hard to go through san francisco and and see it and think it's not a reason i think we have to look at the numbers though like crime is down from 2017 it went up a little bit. Uh, property crime went up in, during the pandemic. We have a graphic we can put but up right now. But I don't now. believe, uh, you know, overall crime down, violent crime slightly up, property crime down um, compared to 2022. And if you compare it against 5, 10, 15 years ago, it's down 40, 60 percent. And, and Franklin, what about homelessness? Because I know that always comes up as well, that people find that, you know, when there are tent cities and there's a lot of homeless that they have to confront in San Francisco, that is, makes it hard for foot traffic. Yeah, I mean, homelessness is not a crime, though. And I think that if, 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 the, if there's a problem with homelessness, it's a problem where the victims are the people who are living without homes, not the retail stores and not the people who can't shop. Um, but again, I think there is a narrative that has coalesced around the city of San Francisco about a massive spike in violent crime, about a massive spike in property crime, and the numbers just don't bear that out. And people should feel free to fact-check me on this, but, you know, all signs that I see, numerically... Don't back up this narrative. There, there was an interesting example in Union Station in Washington, D.C., where a number of much smaller stores, though, a Starbucks, some retail stores, closed down because there was a lot of crime. People were coming through. There was foot traffic. It's opened overnight. Um, but again, I think you make an interesting point about the sheer size of this because th- this is a massive store. It's the and second largest store they have. Yeah, yeah. Post-pandemic, most people are shopping online. They're going in, in, you know, to retail shops less. So I think there is an in-between, but there are definitely businesses that have closed because they just can't keep up with the theft that is taking place. But it tends to be much more these small stores that people can run into, grab something, and leave. We've seen it all over D.C. So to me, there are two issues that we're litigating here. One is, number one, if they didn't leave before the reasons that they said, that's all-time corporate shittiness, like, like, (laughs) without a doubt, okay? But even if they did, then you're looking at this weird, gross corporate white flight leaving an area that is now struggling when you've sort of farmed that area for a long time for its economic goods, right? And now things are a little bit bad. You pack up, you get out. Um, But there's something else that we have to talk about. I'm a dyed-in-the-wool liberal, as liberal as it gets. You know how liberal you guys thought Obama was? I'm way worse, okay? (laughs) But the reality is liberals... Doesn't matter where you're from. Even if you're a Northern California, Silicon Valley liberal, at some point you're going to have to ask yourself if you care about people. And that the reason why I say that is because if you've been to San Francisco recently, you've seen how people there are living. And you've seen the opulence and the wealth that Silicon Valley has that's going on up there. And you've, you also see 
this weird other side of it that it seems like no one is really getting a handle on. And you're going to see people that are going to be able to scapegoat that to make all kinds of corporate decisions, especially if no one cares about them. So as I'm not a Democrat, I'm a liberal. It's two different things. But if 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 we really care about people in their lives and their day to day, hour to hour, second to second existences, then we have to prioritize their care and how they're moving around and feeling or else you're going to get. Nordstrom's or Whole Foods or Star- And because this comes up so often in San Francisco, what is the answer in San Francisco? Well, the first answer is caring about it. Well, that's the first answer. The first answer is prioritizing it. Now, it, one of the most frustrating things about being an American right now is you're constantly told from a country who is over and over and over again done the seemingly impossible about what they can't do, questions we can't answer. And it's not the will, it's the want. So let's, you know, I know everybody's up there is making microchips and all of that stuff and inventing all kinds of new stuff. Let's care about it and put a little bit of thought into the people that are living there. And then maybe some of these questions that we're asking on the backside will have easier answers. Just quickly, I do think addressing the homeless um, issue is is very important because while it's not a crime, I do think that you can allow these people to exist on the margins if you don't have a better solution than just letting them exist in tent cities. That's what I take big issue with. I'm from D.C. I've seen it in San Francisco. Let's come up with a solution that actually serves those people, rehabilitates them to get back and be productive members of society. Thank you very much. All right. Be sure to tune in at the top of the hour when some of our favorite reporters will be here to talk about the scoops that they're covering, including 10-year-old children found working the night shift at a Louisville McDonald's. A lot of them. And next, why are so many schools canceling their high school musicals? We'll tell you about the latest casualty in the culture wars. That was the Broadway hit musical, The Addams Family. It's also become a popular high school production. But one Pennsylvania school board deemed it too dark and gloomy. What is dark and gloomy about singing Death is Just Around the Corner? Uh, They refused to permit the students to perform it. And that's far from the only production being canceled. The Washington Post reports that several high school plays are getting mixed because they have LGBTQ characters. I'm back with the panel. Um, guys, so none of you were in your high school musicals? None of you? I was in a junior high. I was in The Nutcracker. Okay, <laughs> that counts, I think. <laughs> nothing I edgy in The Nutcracker. Okay, well, I was in all of my high school musicals, and there's nothing more wholesome. There's nothing more wholesome right. than being, because you're going for hours after school, and you're dancing and singing with your classmates. Yeah, with the most asexual group of people <laughs> in your entire I'm not school. sure that's true, <laughs> actually. I think that's the perception if you're not part of it. Right. But from what I know from my friends who were, asexual is not a word that they would use to describe themselves. <laughs> but I mean, I just... I, I don't know, Mike, what do you think? Should high school, this is a musical, and they're canceling the Addams Family because it's too dark and gloomy? The Addams Family is, is uh, that's, that's weak. I mean, to, to, you have to let high school students experience things and see things. And, and this goes to a much deeper thing about, you know, reading some articles about canceling shows be, or high school musicals because of LGBTQ yes, characters and, books, cetera, and banning cetera, books. And this is, this is something that is wrong. My party, as a Republican, my party is completely wrong on this. We used to be a party where we believe in the power of the individual. And, you know, you live and let live. 
narrative and you let people pursue happiness as they see fit, not the way the government sees fit or the party sees fit or the church sees fit. And the, the, we talked a lot about a lot of different uh, serious topics on this show. What we need in this country is a little more empathy. And the first step towards empathy is some sort of uh, observation, understanding, experience with people who maybe are different than you. And then maybe you then learn that maybe we're not so different. If I learn about uh, civil rights, if I learn about slavery, if I learn about housing discrimination, I will not suddenly be an African-American, but I will maybe understand a little bit better um, what other people have gone through. Same if I learn more about the AIDS crisis, if I learn more about what transgender youth are going through, it's, it's not going to change who I am, but I will be a better person and I will understand people better for it. And uh, my party is completely wrong on this. And it's a place that really appalls me as a Republican. You know what say, are you people? sure you're a Republican? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this was Republican orthodoxy for decades. I don't know where we've gone in the last you know, 10 or so years that it's like flipping everything on its head. If you don't want your kid to perform in a certain musical because you don't like the content, then your child doesn't. You don't pull back the right of every other child to participate in said musical. Or if you don't like a book, you don't pull them off of Florida shelves or whatever school. But that's old school conservatism, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you know what else makes people feel really good? Musicals. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and that, the fact that they're canceling them. Also, there are some that I can see. There's one in Iowa they canceled, the school district canceled, halted a performance of the play August Osage County, which is... If risque. Very dark. I mean, that's also... I like that, though. It's, it's it's, uh, I saw it on Broadway. It's depressing. It's about <laughs> mental illness. There's suicidal ideation. I mean, there's a lot happening in that. So I don't know why... I would rather a high school musical anyway than that one. I understand, but what I don't understand is sometimes these are in production. Kids have gotten parts when they pull the rug out from underneath them. Speaking of something that deals with uh, tons of fighting, uh, you know, back and forth violence and suicide. What would you think about Romeo and Juliet? I like it. Yeah, right. you know, like, or any of the classic tragedies right. that we've seen yeah. that end in assassination or have people like Othello, which is essentially them torturing this poor brother for different acts on the scene. All of this stuff, it's drama. It's people expressing themselves through a device. And you're supposed to go and really mess around and manipulate those human emotions. You know, I, I was talking earlier, and I remember I was with Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. You ever see that movie? Yeah. Remember the right. Holy Grail and, yeah. you know, you drink out of the wrong cup and stuff? I remember there's a part in the movie where Indiana Jones is talking to a Nazi because he fights the Nazis. And they're burning all of these books, right? Mm -hmm. And somebody says something to him, and he turns around and he looks at the person, and he goes, maybe you should try reading books instead of burning them. <laughs> and that was a very powerful message at that time, because the message coming to me as a kid watching that movie was, well, he's an American. We are the people that read the books instead of burning the books. We are the people that, like, confront the information that's inside of the book and then turn around and synthesize it and use it to make cool stuff. We have become the book burners. Like overnight, we, you look around and we are now the people that burn the books, ban the plays and tell the kids they can't sing and dance on stage. It's really and we're so incurious about how we stopped this or how we got here. But it's really wild when you think about it. We're just too distracted by, by Reddit well, you said, to, like, you, to, to notice. You, you said before, somebody's got to stand up and speak truth to it. You did. Like, this is not, it's conservatives doing this, and this is not conservative ideology. Conservatives believe in the power of the individual, the inherent good of every individual. And to discriminate as a class is wrong. And the way people learn about other people is reading, is through film, is through plays. I mean, so for conservatives to be against this is just wrong. But I mean, I think what we have to, I, I think the Adams family thing, like you said, is it's weakens a bit of an outlier. I think what this really is, is a sort of full frontal attack on the LGBTQ community. Um, 
And, you know, we're seeing it everywhere. And the idea fundamentally is let's remove all traces of their existence from the education system so that we can continue to do terrible things to the people that are members of it in school and outside of school. Um, and so I think, I think we have to sort of look at it as part of a broader context. This is like one fight. This is one front on which they're fighting. Um, but pretty clearly that's, that's the goal here. And like you said, like, Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar. I mean, our town has alcoholism. Right. Death of a salesman. Mm-hmm. Like, Don't let school boards mid, know mid, that. Midsummer Night's Dream. Like, like, what are, what are, what are we talking about? But it misses that high school students yeah. are confronting all these things, whether right. it's mental health, That's suicide, exactly right. racism. That's exactly They're right. confronting it in their actual lives. Yeah, great point. Uh, well, speaking of school, can you pass an eighth grade history test? We're going to challenge you and our panel right after this. Can you pass an eighth grade history test? It turns out a lot of current eighth graders are having trouble. Results from the National Assessment of Educational Progress say the average U.S. history score for eighth grade students in 2022 was five points lower than in 2018. That's Mm. the last year they were assessed. I'm back with Van Lathan and Mike Duhame. Okay, guys, we're going to give you the eighth grade history test. You guys ready? Oh, man. Uh, Here we go. Um, these are real questions from the, these were uh, tests given by the federal government we for eighth graders. Okay, you ready? Right. Here we go. Uh, number one, what were European explorers such as Henry Hudson looking for when they sailed the coast and rivers of North America in the 1600s? <laughs> were they looking for a water trade route to Asia, a land route to South America, land to use for sugar plantations or religious freedom? Go ahead, guys. Uh, like lifeline? Do we get to call somebody? Like, who do you call? B? <laughs> <laughs> Are you just making up B? Do you remember? I, 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 trade route to Asia, I believe, was, was well, a big part of it. That's good. A, a, tr- a water trade route to Asia. Yeah, but don't ask me any more questions. You're one for one. One for one. This is Boom. fantastic. Okay, very good. Moving on. Uh, which of the following is a right guaranteed by the Bill of Rights in the United States Constitution? Is it the right to public education, the right to health care, the right to trial by a jury, the right to vote? Trial by juries. Trial by juries. Impressive. Okay, moving on. Uh, which of the following changes took place in southern states immediately after the Civil War? A, access to education became more available to African-American people. B, most African-Americans quickly switched from agricultural work to employment in manufacturing. C, African-American women were given the right to vote. Uh, D, state governments were required to have African-American people in legislative and executive offices. D. Any ideas? I don't know. A, access to education became more available to African-American people. Okay, next. I mean, you're, you're basically close so to eighth grade. Two. but I'm yeah, two okay. for two because I passed. Okay, here comes one there more. <laughs> Here's the last one. Which of the following reasons best explains why many people supported the 18th Amendment, which banned the sale of alcohol? A, mm. they believed that drinking alcohol had a negative impact on society. B, they wanted to prevent organized crime from profiting for al- from alcohol sales. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't C, didn't that at all. they believed that alcohol would hurt the country's ability to fight in the Second World War. Or D, they really hoped sad. alcohol would become more expensive if it were made illegal. It's, it's, a, they see, it's a trick because it's definitely see, not B or C. It, yeah, so let's, let's, let's workshop this together. Yeah, so we can work, reach across the aisle. I like see, that. we can like do together it. Together you'd make one eighth grader. Together you'd make one eighth grader. I'll say A and you say D. Okay. Yeah. Well, look. Did he? Did the did the conservative just trick me? No, I don't mean to. If I do, it's, it's just like, I didn't mean to. If I do, <laughs> I trick myself. Maybe it's That's like that. Hilarious. You have to choose one. You can't just you can't just say we're going to go for two of different answers. You well, well if one. we each pick one. Yeah. 
So he's going to pick A, I'm going to pick D. Oh, and then you're both going to win if it's either one of them. Yeah, yeah, we're this kind of like a team. This is what America's supposed to be. Exactly. Exactly. You're building we're, we're a bridge. Yeah, it's what we're doing, Okay, right? this is, yeah, I see, I see. Thousand points of light. I, know I like that. Okay, well then in that case, you win. That They believed that al- drinking alcohol had a negative impact on society. That was A. Okay, oh, wow. here we go. Right. Well done, three guys. Three together, one you're one, one eighth, eighth grader. Yes. By the way, yes. I consider myself a history buff. I had zero clue what any of these questions. You did it well. You answered some of them. Guys, that was great. Thank you. Impressive. Great blame, to have you here. Blame the learning loss of pandemic. Oh, I do. I yeah. do. Uh, all right, coming up, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories they're working on for tomorrow, and they're going to share their scoops with us. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters to share their scoops. Here's here with me. We have Melanie Zanona, Danny Freeman, Diane Gallagher and Omar Jimenez. And we have a lot to talk about because there are new developments tonight in the Trump special counsel investigation. Sources tell CNN that Jack Smith is now asking questions about the handling of surveillance tapes from Mar-a-Lago and whether they could have been tampered with. Meanwhile, the Biden administration faces a ticking clock on two looming crises. Title 42 is about to end, which could lead to a surge of migrants. And the debt Limit is coming dangerously close to default. So let's find out what's next. Melanie, let's start with you. Tell us what's happening in this special counsel news. You know, there is an old saying in Washington. It's not the crime, but the cover up. So we already knew that the special counsel was looking into Trump's handling of classified documents. We now know that they are also looking into how they handled security footage in Mar-a-Lago and whether it was tampered, whether it was withheld. So that is a sign that the investigators are strongly looking into a possible obstruction of justice charge. And specifically, our fabulous colleagues, uh, Paul Reed and Caitlin Polance, found out that there are two senior Trump-level organization employees who are going to go before the special counsel tomorrow. So that's something to look out for. And they are expected to be asked about that footage. And the reason why that footage is so important is because it can really shed light on exactly how those documents were handled. CNN reported that there is footage of this other Trump aide who was bringing out boxes of documents from a storage closet. And so this is a very significant step in the investigation. And it's a sign that they are getting closer and closer to Trump's inner circle. So just so I understand, this, these are surveillance tapes because he had a home security system. And so these were just on at all times. Cameras were on at all times of the room where these documents were supposed to be kept. Yeah, specifically in Mar-a-Lago. And these two witnesses that are going to be called before the grand jury were in charge of security operations. So they have intimate knowledge of the workings of Mar-a-Lago. And that's why they're such crucial witnesses. But the question is, were there conversations about whether to withhold that information? Were there questions about tampering with it? It's important because it came after there was a subpoena for that security footage. So those are the questions that investigators are going to be looking into. Do we know who these um, officials are? Like, uh, are they household names? Or well, they, they have s- fabulous names. Matthew, <laughs> C- Matthew Calamari Sr. and Matthew Calamari Jr. They do sound delicious. Yeah, they, <laughs> great names. Um, but they are two, they are two longtime Trump employees. Uh, Matthew Sr. was a senior vice president. He, his life was really subsidized by the Trump organization. And his son was the head of security operations. So they would have a lot of knowledge about exactly how that security footage was maintained and what went down afterwards. Okay, now tell us the update that we need to know for what's happening next with the Title 42 expiring. So the Biden administration is bracing for the fallout and a potential 
surge of migrants at the border. They know that this could be a political liability for them. And so they are taking some preemptive steps to try to mitigate the fallout. One thing that they're doing is they're sending active troops, active duty troops down to the border to serve in sort of an administrative role, not to do law enforcement, but to try to free up some resources for other law enforcement down at the border. They've also struck a deal with Mexico where Mexico is going to continue receiving migrants, non-Mexican migrants who are turned away at the border. That was the policy, the Trump era policy that is now being lifted. So they know that this is a logistical challenge, but it's also a political challenge because however Biden handles this, he's going to be getting incoming from the right. He's going to be getting incoming from the left, the progressives who don't want him to return to this Trump era policy. They want to make sure the conditions at the border are humane. And so he is walking into a potential landmine. But the fact of the matter is, and we were talking about this earlier, without the help of Congress, there's very little he can do on his own. So his hands are really tied. Well, and you mentioned from the left, this is also a potential and maybe already is a humanitarian crisis. So it's not just political. And because of the president's situation here, they have to be careful about how this plays out from the left as well. Yeah. And that's absolutely part of the calculation for the Biden administration is how they're going to handle this. And You know, it is going to be a factor potentially in his 2024 election. Uh, In terms of Congress, there have been efforts in the past to try to address Mm -hmm. this. He's not the first president to have to deal with this, right? It happened for Trump. It happened for Obama. They came close in 2013 in Congress in getting a deal. They actually passed something, a bipartisan bill in the Senate, but it ended up failing in the House. And part of the problem is Congress is just so polarized polarized nowadays. And what I was going to say along those lines is, okay, you know, this isn't just happening in a vacuum. There are so many other, including, you know, the debt ceiling fight that they're having uh, on both sides. And is there a scenario where the, the fight over how immigration is handled seeps into other issues? Or, or do you feel confident that you know, they'll be able to actually uh, compartmentalize. I'm not there. confident about anything. I was going to say, yeah, as soon as I said it, I was like, yeah, there's no way. Yeah, yeah. But no, I mean, you're absolutely right. These debates can seep into each other. When they have, for example, a funding deadline, they will try to stuff in all of their priorities. And one of the things that Republicans on the Hill are clamoring for is more border security Monday. Uh, they have a border package they're putting on the floor next week, but that's something they're going to fight for in spending. Um, and in terms of the debt ceiling, I mean, there's just a whole host of things that could really get wrapped up in that debate, whether it's energy policy, border security. I mean, there's a whole list of things that they want to tackle. Melanie, can I ask you, you know, we're talking about two different things, or you just spoke about two different things. The Trump issues at Mar-a-Lago and now debt ceiling and immigration. I guess from your framework of how you're covering and looking towards 2024, will the normal campaign issues of like economy and immigration be the focus or will these abnormal indictment special counsel be more the focus of 2024? Do you have a sense right now? I would say the conventional wisdom usually is that the economy, the border, those issues will matter. But we heard that time and a time last summer that this was going to be the midterms was going to be the gas and groceries election. And what we found in the midterms was that abortion mattered. Threats to democracy mattered. So I think it's really hard to say what is going to matter. But the economy always, of course, is a, is a top issue for the president. Isn't it also interesting in terms of the border that President Biden is going to surge the border with active duty National Guard, National Guard or, or military? Yeah. Um, I guess both. And that's what President Trump did, too. And President Trump did Title 42, mm-hmm. and President Biden has kept it in place. And so there's all of these, obviously, uh, partisan, you know, rancor 
when either side does it. But at the end of the day, there are only so many tools exactly. in the kit that the president can do without Congress doing anything. And they both try them. And it's funny to hear, you know, Democrats are fine with it now. Mm-hmm. But now when, you know, President Trump does it and vice versa. And the other interesting point that you bring up there is that immigration policy right now is being set by court rulings. It's not being set by lawmakers passing laws. And that's another part of the problem. I think everyone agrees that our immigration system is broken. It's outdated. But the problem is they can't agree on a solution of how to solve it. Yeah, that's a really tough one. And meanwhile, as you say, the humanitarian crisis, Mm -hmm. what's the plan? Well, I mean, they are already starting to call down to different cities that are expecting to get this flux of migrants uh, potentially next week. It also tends to uptick in the summer. They are assuring that they're going to do everything that they can to ensure that the conditions are humane. But it remains to be seen. It is an incredibly difficult position. It's a very tricky position that Biden's in. And it's not there's not a simple way to handle it. Are they offering additional assistance to these cities? Well, that's the thing. The cities that keep asking, especially these blue state cities where the governor of Texas has been busing migrants, they're asking, what is the plan? We need more resources. Um, that has been a, a very, very chief concern for them about how they're going to handle this. Uh, and they just don't have a lot of options at their disposal right now. Yes. And as you know, Governor Abbott is sort of making, I think, political hay about saying, you call yourself sanctuary cities. Here you go. Exactly. But it's interesting, you know, you, you mentioned that the perhaps double standard or, you know, it means one thing in one administration and nothing in another. I remember I was at the border in San Diego and the military came down during the Trump administration. They were putting the barbed wire up. It was a big show. And the Biden administration, though, was very clear to say this is just administrative. There, it, it seemed that there was some preemptive. No, no, no that they're going to be sitting behind desks helping the National Guard that's already there. So, again, it's that's interesting. So they're doing do we know that they'll be playing a different role? I mean, I think it's unclear. They're definitely, they're sending the troops down and specifically saying right. that it will be administrative, like I said, and the reason is so they could free up mm-hmm. sort of resources where the Border Patrol and other law enforcement agencies don't have to waste their resources doing that. But we have to see how this plays out. It's one thing to say it's going to look one way, and we'll have to see if they actually follow through. Lonnie, thank you for all the reporting. Really great information. (laughs) Thanks for all that. We'll watch it, of course. Okay. meanwhile, the suspect in the deadly shooting in Midtown Atlanta is under arrest tonight. He was captured inside a gated condo community after barking dogs there raised suspicions. Omar has new details, and he's going to tell us what it's like to cover active shootings and investigations. We'll be right back. Twenty-four-year-old Dion Patterson under arrest tonight after police say he shot a woman to death and injured four others at a Northside medical facility in Atlanta. The woman who was killed has been identified now as 38-year-old Amy St. Pierre. She worked for the CDC. CNN's Omar Jimenez is on this story. How did he get captured? Well, as we learned from uh, one of our reporters who actually on the ground there in uh, in the Atlanta area, this happened near Truist Park, which is where the Atlanta Braves play at a condo complex. And as we understand, there was a, a woman who heard dogs barking near the pool area of this condo complex, so much so that she started to get suspicious that maybe they were barking at something. So she called in a tip. Many people in the Cobb County area, which is just north of of downtown uh, Atlanta, had known that this shooter had been seen in the area. So they were all on alert. They call it in. 
Police come to the scene. They go check it out that area in the pool. And sure enough, they start yelling, get down, get down, get down. And they take this shooter into custody. And this came after hours. The shooting first happened a little bit after noon or so. Walked into uh, the Northside uh, Hospital uh, system in Midtown Atlanta. And as we understand, the 11th floor waiting room immediately started shooting after getting agitated in some way. We still don't know exactly what that agitation may have been. Uh, five people were shot. One was killed, as we just identified, Amy St. Pierre, that, that 38-year-old CDC employee. Three were taken to the hospital in critical condition, one in stable condition. But obviously, this the initial news of this and not knowing where this person was for hours on end created a really, really tense situation and a nerve-wracking one for for a lot of people in the city. And we've been talking to you this week about other manhunts. I mean, this has just been a a nightly uh, reporting gig for you, and we've been reporting on it tonight. And so just tell us, tell the viewers what it's like when you're reporting on a manhunt, when there's some sort of active or armed and dangerous shooter on the loose. Where do you begin? When the police are looking for somebody, how are you reporting on that? Well, it's a combination of things. I mean, one, you're looking at potentially if, if the person's still in the immediate area you're looking at what the police movements are going to be. Because sometimes when a large amount of police show up to a presence, it's not necessarily because they need all that police. It's because they might need that police. And so it's a lot easier to sort of pare down those forces than to ramp up all so of So they have a, a show of force. Show of and force. And you're looking at that and area. trying to figure out what's going on because obviously they have a barricade or whatever, a perimeter of course, up. Of course. And then... Again, if if this shooter is in the immediate area or if there's another scene, you might start to see people peeling off. There's another shooting. If there's a a sighting, a carjacking in this case, um, you know, and so so those are things you're looking for. You're also looking at social media as well because the police are also looking at social media. And sometimes you may see a video that a bystander posted Mm -hmm. 30 seconds or a minute after they post it. And so you might say, oh, this looks like something. Maybe we should get there. And then you start listening to scanner traffic and it seems like the police are going there. So you're kind of just looking and being aware of your surroundings. I will say it is a different dynamic when the person is still on the loose versus they've either been killed or they've been arrested. Because you, as reporters, you don't even know if they're going to come back to the scene where you all are as as police are out looking them, as has happened. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, And so that changes the the dynamics uh, exponentially. So you're never trying to get ahead of the police. If you get a tip, if you find out from, say, a family member or your interview family, are, are you going ever going someplace that the police aren't yet? I would not recommend it. Um, I, I think it, it just depends on the type of situation. Like, for example, the way Gary Tuckman reported about the account from the, from the women. That's more of the best case scenario because you're now getting information that the police haven't put out yet, even though the situation's been resolved. Because I personally... I don't want to come across someone who may be armed and dangerous uh, just for the sake of of leading a newscast or getting, you know, trending on Twitter or whatever it may be. It's just not worth it. There's also a lot of false alarms, too, in these situations. Yeah, exactly. Two weeks ago, uh, if you remember, there was a story of the man who got upset when a basketball rolled into his yard Mm -hmm. and began shooting the neighborhood. He shot a six-year-old child, her father, um, the mother, another person. He was on the loose for... Two days. And 
people in the neighborhood kept saying they couldn't sleep. They were afraid. They were scared. We were out in that neighborhood with them, and they were afraid to be in their homes. We were out there live at the basketball, you know, goal. Mm -hmm. And... I is, remember, it nerve, is it nerve-wracking? I mean, somebody's on the loose and you're reporting. In some cases, yes. But there was a moment where suddenly there was a lot of activity and everyone kind of started freaking out. A woman drove in. She goes, they've locked down the school. They think he might be in the area. It was a false alarm. Everyone was jumpy. And in these cases, and that's about reporting this, too, you have yeah. to be careful about what you take everything a bit with a grain of salt. You've got to recheck, check, and check because people get jumpy. Everybody sees something that might not be it. But everything is a tip, and you have to follow through on that stuff. If not, sometimes you do have to send that over to law enforcement and let them know, too. And that's one of the things that the, the Cobb County chief talked about today was that part of the difficulty was because they had blasted his picture out and because Everybody. they were making sure the community was aware, people were doing the, the good thing and calling in mm -hmm. tips, but not all of those tips. Those tips were, as the chief described, sending officers this way in one sense, sending officers another way, and they were having to decipher, okay, which one feels right? Which one is matching up with kind of the area that we think he's in based on our, our leads? Yeah. I gotta say though, I mean, I, I, and I said this last night when you're talking about yeah. the manhunt in Texas and again tonight, I mean, th when you talk about the danger and the nerves as a reporter going in, you know, little law enforcement, I mean, I've seen situations where it ends in a shootout, yeah. Yeah. right? And, and yeah. I mean, there was a situation in Philadelphia that was similar to this where a, a man walked into a hospital, shot a coworker, went, fled, and it was later on in the morning that he ended up having a shootout with police. And I mean, that that's how it can get you know, really frightening because a lot of times you don't get the suspect apprehended yeah. without mm -hmm. something like that. And, you know, especially if it's weird, you're talking about a mass shooting that starts this entire incident. So, I mean, that's something that really is is frightening for, again, law enforcement who are searching for them, neighborhoods that are for sure. potentially yeah. looking. And, and journalists, have, journalists yeah. Yeah. have been caught in the crossfire. Absolutely. Yeah. There are times when you have to make that calculation of, trying to protect your own safety versus doing your job. I was actually in the Capitol on January 6th. I was part of that group that was in the House chamber. We were in lockdown. They told us to get underneath our chairs, duck for cover, put on gas masks. And I remember sitting there thinking, I want to see what's happening. And I started tweeting. I know my family was not happy that I was using precious uh, battery to tweet out the news. But I am... I'm so as traumatic as that was for for me and, and the country. I am so happy that I documented the truth and was able to get it out there, especially because in the aftermath, we saw the efforts to try to lie about what happened. That but day. in that moment, how scared were you? Uh, you know, I think I was too scared. To even I was in shock. I didn't realize mm -hmm. how scary it was for me. The scariest moments really didn't sink in until two or three days later when I was experiencing PTSD because you're just running on a general and yeah. adrenaline. You're trying to report the news. They came back that night and yeah. certified the election. And then in the days after, it was all about impeachment. So the second I stopped moving, that's when I started getting. Scared. I was going to say, I think all of, it happens to all of us at whatever whatever yeah. hurricanes we're yep. thrown into, whatever whatever mm -hmm. situation we're thrown into, that the job itself becomes a little bit of a distraction yeah, to the yeah. actual totally. insanity that's yes. going on around mm -hmm. you because your friends will watch you be like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And I'm like, what are you talking about? We're what just, is wrong you know, with you? Yeah. you know, I'm and like, and I do think that it does give us a little bit of false bravado or a veneer of thinking, yeah. Yeah. I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing my job. As things are flying around you for a hurricane, your vehicle tips exactly. over, like shooter yes. somewhere. Exactly. You're, yes. And so, obviously, everybody takes precautions and is careful. But thanks oh, yeah. for explaining all of that. It's really interesting to hear. Um, okay, this is just in. North Carolina Republicans have passed a bill in the House to limit most abortions after 12 weeks. What happens next? Diane is covering this developing story. She's going to fill us in. 
North Carolina Republicans passing a bill moments ago in the state legislature that would limit most abortions there after 12 weeks. This is the latest state to take steps to restrict abortion rights since the Supreme Court overturned the Dobbs decision. 14 states have either banned or severely restricted access to an abortion. Diane Gallagher is here to fill us in. This just happened moments ago. So what now? So within this past hour, the North Carolina State House passed this 12-week abortion ban. Now, I want to be very clear. The bill itself is about 26 hours old currently right now. It is one step away from going to the governor's desk. They introduced this bill late last night. It went to a committee hearing in the morning, and it was already in the House with a vote tonight. Uh, The Republican Party in North Carolina has felt quite empowered with this new supermajority that they have. This is something that if you had asked people a year ago, would they be able to do this? They'd say, no, they're not going to do this. It's not the climate. It's happening, and it's happening at a rapid pace. Because a Democrat switched switched parties. To give them that supermajority. And so this particular abortion bill, We are talking about a 12-week ban with limited exceptions. So 20 weeks exceptions for rape and incest victims. 24 weeks for what they call life-limiting fetal anomalies. Also, they have exceptions for the life of a mother for physical risks. Okay. It also adds lots of new steps and requirements and restrictions uh, for abortion care, including medication abortions. And we're talking about multiple doctor's appointments that have to be done in person. The medicine would have to be prescribed in person. Then they would have to come back to take it and then come back again for a follow-up appointment. And the doctors can have penalties because of this. So there's a lot in this bill. The Republicans have said this is, in their words, mainstream, that they've added the exceptions people ask for, but they want to put some they want to put some some guardrails on things. Democrats are saying that this is, again, this slippery slope, but there's also so much at stake in the state of North Carolina. And as you mentioned, this probably wouldn't be happening if we hadn't had that switch of parties. I want to talk about this woman because um, I interviewed one of her opponents. This is fascinating. So she was a lifelong Democrat. In fact, she was um, an abortion rights advocate, um, as I understand it. Her name is Trisha Cotham. Cotham. Mm -hmm. Trisha Cotham. And you have been reporting on her for years. So, yes. In fact, I currently live about five miles away from where her district begins. (laughs) So I covered her in local news um, uh, 10 years ago when I worked in Charlotte. And uh, she was very, very uh, she she was very into abortion rights. She was very into uh, women empowerment as well. Um, There was a moment in 2015 where She spoke on the House floor when North Carolina was introducing a 72-hour waiting period. She talked about her own experience with an abortion. And I I think we actually have the clip to play. You can hear what she said in 2015. Let's do it, Mm because she changed tonight. Okay, so let's listen to this. Abortion is a deeply personal decision. It should not be a political debate. My womb and my uterus is not up for your political grab. Legislators, you, do not hold shares in my body. So stop trying to manipulate my mind. So fast forward eight years to tonight, and she voted... I'm going to do you one better, Allison. Fast forward to her campaign 
to run for office as a Democrat. Which is just in the past year. Uh, in November. Okay. In <laughs> yes, November, yes. Like, literally, yeah. She was sworn into office in January on a pro-abortion rights platform where her goal was to, there was a tweet literally one year ago today where she talked about her priority being to codify Roe versus Wade into the like North Carolina Constitution. The, 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 she has talked about this. She is currently a sponsor on a bill that still exists in this session for codifying Roe versus Wade. And tonight she votes in favor of this 12-week abortion, abortion ban with limits. Yes. So how does she explain that? Uh, she has not talked about it yet. However, she has talked about why she switched her party. And she has spoken to some local media where she began to sort of soften her positions a bit on abortion, saying that, look, I, I'm not just the abortion lady, essentially. I can have a nuanced view on things. And look, politicians can evolve, but I, this is not being received well. Um, I think we may have some sound from her explaining why she switched parties. I know you know about this, but maybe everyone hasn't Great. kept up with. Let's listen. Yeah. A turning point for me was when I was criticized for using the American flag and the praying hands emoji on all my social media platforms and even on the back of different vehicles that I have. I really could not believe that was the conversation that was happening at that time. And I was deeply offended. So that was the turning so point? So emojis wow. is the yeah. answer? Yeah. Emojis. So yeah, uh, she essentially has said that she felt bullied out of the party. I will tell you that some of the comments she has made have been fact-checked by the incredible statehouse journalists in North Carolina. And they've said that a lot of her comments are just not legit. Hmm. Um, they're out of order. That's not how something may have happened. But she did vote in favor of this today. There's a catch, though, Alice. What is it? So... Another catch here. Yes. <laughs> supermajority. She gave the House of North, the, the North Carolina State House, a supermajority. The Republicans. The Senate already had a supermajority. So when she switched parties, the governor is a Democrat in North Carolina, Roy Cooper. It basically kneecapped his veto power. However, tonight in this vote, one Republican did not vote. Uh, Representative Ted Davis out of New Hanover County, so the coastal area. Two Democrats didn't vote. So, and I told you, I'm going to do some, some math yes, here, right? Yes, there's math tonight. So, yeah. if the vote tonight was the exact same as it was for an override, it would go through. They would override the governor's veto. Right. However, if those two Democrats tonight who did not vote chose to vote not to override, but that Republican chose to continue to abstain, the Democrats would be able to sustain the governor's veto. Governor Roy Cooper has vowed to veto this already. Oh, I see. So it is going to go to the governor's desk. He is yes. going to veto it. Then it's going to go back. Yes. And then we have to see they have how the power. They yes, they have the power to do it with a full supermajority. But the law in North Carolina requires three-fifths of the present and voting members to be there. So if you're gone, it reduces that number. If you don't vote, it reduces that number. And so it's, we're, we're dealing with the tiniest of margins on something that is so substantial and so consequential for people's lives. And again, as you say, something that she campaigned on. And so I can only imagine we're basically out of time. But her constituents, you live there. How do they feel about her about face? So I will note she's not my representative in that closer. area. I live close. Yeah. But I, there was a lot of shock and a lot of anger. This She represents a blue area. And so I think there were a lot of people who feel like they sort of got like hoodwinked almost like. 
she just ran and she ran on this platform. She ran on an LGBTQ protection platform and voted for a bill that would limit trans uh, students playing in women's sports. Um, all of these things seem antithetical to her exact platform from a couple months ago and even her actions in the House from a few weeks before she switched. Now, again, North Carolina doesn't have a recall option either. So there's no recourse for her constituents. They just have to wait until the next election. We have a little bit more time. You guys have any questions? Uh, is there a political reason for her right. shift? I mean, is her yeah. district going to change? Does she want to run statewide? Like, what? I'm trying to think So, what the reasoning could, there was some, reasoning could be here. There were some hints at the very beginning of the session when she was given a chair um, by the Republican Speaker of the House. She was one of two Democrats to receive a chair. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a moment, at least. Uh, there, there's no donations that anybody at this point has tracked down. There's no anything beyond the fact that she says she felt bullied out of her party. She felt like things were changing. But we, I mean, we have to go, but, yeah. I, but I think that she was offered the chairship. Um, mm-hmm. and, and also, I heard she got a really big office. <laughs> that's what, that's what <laughs> worth it. I will also said. note that she yeah. is a very big proponent of school choice, which is a, very much a a Republican um, platform in the state, and she has been able to push through that pet project actually very recently. That's interesting. That. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you very much for all of that, helping us with this breaking news. Okay. It sounds like something out of the 19th century, but it's a very modern problem. Children as young as 10 years old working sometimes until two o'clock in the morning. Danny is working this story for us. He's going to explain this. More than 300 minors, including two 10-year-olds, have been illegally working at McDonald's restaurants. That's the finding of a government investigation into child labor law violations in the Southeast. In 2022, nearly 4,000 minors were found to be employed in violation of child labor laws. That's up 37 percent from 2021. More than $4 million in civil penalties were assessed for violations of child labor laws in 2022. That's up 29 percent. And 688 minors were found to be employed in illegally hazardous occupations in 2022. That's up 26%. And Danny is here to explain. Danny, what happened at McDonald's? Yeah, so this headline, I think, really screamed across the country when the Department of Labor came out with this. So I'll explain as best as I can, because I think there are a couple of different layers to what's going on here. But first, that headline... Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division uh, today announced they found three McDonald's franchises all operating in the Louisville, Kentucky area. Uh, and they, the Department of Labor said that they employed 305 minors to work later, longer than law permits, federal law permits for youth. And also two 10-year-old children were employed, but not paid, by Louisville McDonald's franchise working as late as 2 a.m. And I just want to say some of the things that the 10-year-olds were supposedly doing at these McDonald's. It included taking orders, uh, cleaning the store, working the drive through uh, working a register as well. And at least one of the children, uh, the 10-year-olds, uh, was allowed to operate a deep fryer. And of all of the rules to be breaking, that is one that the Department of Labor emphasized. That's a really bad and dangerous one. So that sets the stage of the headline that we saw today. And as you can imagine, a lot of people talking about this today. What does McDonald's say? So 
it's important to remember the tiers here, right? Uh, McDonald's operates on franchises largely. So the three franchisees in question are separate from the larger McDonald's corporation. But McDonald's, they weighed in. They released a statement, I think we have right here, where they said, essentially, uh, these reports, unacceptable, deeply troubling, run afoul of the high expectations we have, entire McDonald's brand. So McDonald's' corporation is coming out and explicitly saying this is not something that we condone, this is not something that we endorse. Uh, and one of the things that they emphasize is that we're going to continue working with the federal government to make sure all labor laws are enforced in specifically these locations that we're talking about right now. Do we know the situation with these 10-year-olds? Where were their parents? What was happening? What, what do we know about the family? Okay, so this is where it gets a little more interesting, and perhaps there are more layers than just that shocking headline uh, may illustrate. So uh, one of the franchisees, they actually released a statement. They explained, or at least tried to explain, what happened. And it was only one of the franchisees uh, that had those two 10-year-olds working at one of their stores. And what they said, this is Bauer Food LLC, they told CNN that the two 10-year-olds were children of a night manager who was working at one of the stores, and the night manager brought in those children to visit that night manager at the store, work with them. Now, the, the company, the franchisees, they said that's still not acceptable. But the reason I want to bring it up is because there are probably two different things going on here. The vast majority of the other uh, penalties that the Department of Labor found were 14, 15-year-olds who were working longer hours than they're supposed to be working, right? Or hours outside of the normal allowed time of day that you can be working if you're a teen. The 10-year-old situation seems to be something specifically different, though, where at least this company is saying they came with their parents or a parent to the store to help out. I wonder what's happening in terms of more, all those statistics that I read, in terms of more children working. Is that an economic thing? States are passing laws. They're rolling back child labor And why are they doing that? Well, so there are a few different things here. Again, then there's larger context, which again is why it was interesting that, you know, we asked the Department of Labor, by the way, for a little bit more information on the individual family, uh, some of the details here. We still haven't heard back. But to your question, yes, there has been a push in some states recently to roll back child labor laws. Arkansas uh, is one of the more notable ones in recent years. I think you guys talked about Wisconsin talking about serving alcohol potentially for 14 or 14-year-olds being able to serve alcohol. Um, but the reasoning, at least in Arkansas, when that happened was uh, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders said there are some regulations, there are some permits that we don't think are necessary uh, or we think are an impediment to having some young kids work and get into the you know, habit of working. But advocates say that leads to problems and that leads to Ten-year-olds at deep fryers? Right. Perhaps what we saw in this particular situation. And there is a situation, too, where in recent years, I mean, we've seen, obviously, the jumps in percentages. I mean, the Department of Labor has said since 2018 that the jump has been over 60 percent in violations of of Mm -hmm. child labor laws. But one thing I think we've seen in recent years is a lot more of those have included migrant children who are caught up in the system, coming over with their parents, or potentially Mm -hmm. even being separated from their parents, and they end up in communities where they actually are in some ways incentivized to work to help their family, yet, and so they're willing to overlook some of those those guidelines that could get them caught up with the Department of Labor or whatever it may be. You're absolutely right, and that's the other layer of context, right, yeah. is that actually the New York Times earlier this year, they released a big uh, investigative report and expose saying that the government, the federal government, has been turning a blind eye to a lot of migrant children basically being exploited uh, with child labor. Mm -hmm. And then the Biden administration came out and said, 
we're going to take this more seriously. This is going to be a priority for us. And I think this is one of the examples of the federal government basically saying we're going to take this more seriously. We're going to crack down and we're going to address it. Now, the challenge in this particular case is that the government did not say specifically that these 300 plus minors were migrants. We We weren't clear as to what their individual situation was. But again, if you're reading the tea leaves, that seems to be the timing. Federal government says we're going to take this a little more seriously. And then we see this news release. What is the consequence? Quickly. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard. So the consequences from the federal government, uh, these franchisees, they have penalties. They have dollar amounts Mm -hmm. in total. I believe it was over $200,000 that they uh, had to pay collectively, each one a different smaller amount. Uh, But that's at least from the federal government's perspective, that's the penalty for the moment. So it doesn't seem like the individual people are being penalized. It seems the franchisees, the owners of these businesses, these McDonald's, are paying the price. Danny, thanks for explaining all of that. I mean, that's definitely a phenomenon that people didn't know necessarily was happening. Yeah, you bet. Again, it's exploitation is bad. Children working in dangerous situations is bad. And it's about figuring out what the... What's happening underneath? That is a challenge that I think we're all going to have to work on. For sure. All right, up next, on the lookout, our reporters tell us what stories they are looking out for on the horizon. We are back with our fantastic panel of reporters to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. Okay, Melanie. I am looking out for the coronation of King Charles. And I'm not talking about the new CNN show featuring Gail King and Charles Barkley. <laughs> no, talking, that's also a That's also a good lookout. But I'm talking about the official celebration of Charles III officially ascending to the throne after being the heir for 70 years. There's going to be a ton of pomp and circumstance, pageantry. And there is a Washington angle because the first lady, Jill Biden, is going to be attending. So, oh, bosses, exciting. if you want to send me, you know, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I see what you're doing. All right, Danny, go. Uh, the, in the, of course, case of the century that everyone's watching, the Ed Sheeran copyright yeah. music case, uh, jury has entered deliberations. They did at the end of today. They're picking up a new uh, tomorrow. I think this is fascinating. I keep listening to these two songs and trying to figure out myself, uh, I will be glued to hearing what this verdict is. Do you think he copied them? Ah, oh, no, I'm the reporter. You can't put me on a spot like that. You're right, you're right. That isn't fair. Play the songs. We'll see. We'll play. We'll play. All right, excellent. Go, Diane, go ahead. All right, so of course I'm going to be watching the North Carolina Senate tomorrow on that abortion bill, but I'm also going to be watching Texas where the state Senate passed a bill that would allow the Secretary of State to effectively redo elections but only in Harris County, where Houston is, which has become much more Democratic over time and did very well for Democrats in the midterms. But the GOP has alleged there's been election mismanagement. They had a rough election last time around. Still, of course, there's some concern about why they would want this governor-appointed position to redo those elections. It would still have to go to the state house in Texas, though. I'm glad you're keeping an eye on that. Thank Always. you very much, Omar. All right, I feel bad. This is the time I keep an eye on something not so serious. But the trailer for the new Dune just came out today. Yes. And so now oh. I feel like I'm itching for what new details are we going to get from it. I saw I saw Austin Butler, not as Elvis, but as, I don't know. They didn't, they didn't, we didn't hear his voice. So the jury's out on whether he actually sounds like Elvis in this. But he looks scary. He's playing an assassin as part of it. And if you didn't see the first one, I just have flashbacks being an IMAX and that score like 
piercing my soul. And so now I'm trying to see if if that will be repeated in this. And based on the trailer, I honestly think it's, it's probably going to happen. It, it, yeah. That's right. intense. You sold it. Like, oh, That's, voice. Yeah. Could you imagine if he still sounded like oh that? Maybe it's gosh. just perma Elvis. Yeah. No, he it said, he like said he he's had trouble shaking it. Wow. But, you know. Trouble. We'll all right. Friends, yeah. thank you off it, all though. very much. That was excellent. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, all eyes on Wall Street as another regional bank could be in trouble. We are fresh reporting at 6 a.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for watching us tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.